I love that story of Elijah. It's one of my favorites in all of Scripture. All of the Bible is inspired, right? All of it is authoritative for our lives. And yet, some stories stand out more than others, don't they? We all have our favorites, don't we? And I love that story of Elijah. Remember, just one chapter before, Elijah is on Mount Carmel with all the prophets of Baal. It's this massive showdown where the prophets are on one side and Elijah is on the other. And they're trying to figure out who the true God is. And and they come up with a little contest. Elijah and the prophets will each take turns preparing a sacrifice on the altar. And they agree that the God who answers by fire... Well, he is the true God. Will it be the God of the Israelites or the God of Baal, who was thought to control the weather? You see, ancient people would always blame it on Baal when Dallas Rains told them that we were on Stormwatch 2021. (laughs) Who's your favorite? Is it Dallas Rains or Johnny Mountain? (laughs) Dallas? Pastor Brian says Dallas. So... Stormwatch, 2021. They would blame it on Baal. So these prophets of Baal go first. He's the god of weather after all. It's going to be a quick contest. But when they prepare the sacrifice and they call upon their god, there's no answer. So they keep praying and dancing and trying to get his attention. At one point, they even cut themselves. They even cut their own skin and bleed their own blood as a way of saying, Baal, don't you realize how much we need you to answer us, how much we need you to to help us win this contest over the God of the Israelites, but there is no answer. Nothing happens. And at one point, Elijah even taunts them. He says, well, perhaps he is busy, which was a euphemism in Hebrew for using the restroom. (laughs) This is true. Perhaps he is busy. Some of these Old Testament prophets were pretty salty characters. They would not be ordained Presbyterian ministers who are supposed to be nice, right? It wouldn't work very well. Now, when it's Elijah's turn, when they finally give up, Elijah repairs the altar, he prepares his sacrifice, and then he prays a very simple prayer. That God would reveal himself. And out of nowhere, fire falls from heaven, the prophets fall to their knees, and they declare, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's one of the best stories for a flannel graph ever, right? But then Elijah kills the prophets of Baal, which is the part we skip over in Sunday school. (laughs) Passages like this are a reminder of how some stories are descriptive but not prescriptive. They describe what happened but do not prescribe what we should do. As a result, of course, Elijah is then on the run, on the run from King Ahab and and his queen Jezebel. I love that as he's on the run, he's so tired and worn out from the journey that he gets a nap and then a snack, and that's not enough. Then he gets another nap and a snack. Apparently, I and Elijah are very similar. (laughs) When we're cranky and tired, what we most need is a nap and a snack. He finally, after 40 days and 40 nights, hides out in a cave. It's called Mount Horeb, but really it's Mount Sinai. It's the same place Moses went to receive the law. And a great and a powerful wind tears the mountains apart and shatters the rocks, but God's not in the wind. 
After the wind, there's an earthquake, but God is not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake comes a fire, and God is not in the fire. And after the great and powerful wind and the earthquake and the fire comes a gentle whisper. Some Bibles translate it, the sound of sheer silence. And Elijah walks up to the mouth of the cave. I love that story of Elijah. You have this incredible juxtaposition between 1 Kings 18 and 1 Kings 19. The great and powerful things that God can do and the way that God usually works. This morning we continue our series we've called Foundational. We're engaging the foundation of faith in Jesus. And to understand what Paul says in Galatians 1, we have to understand what happened with Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Because what happened with Elijah happened to Paul, and what happened to Paul happens to us. We're picking it up in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11. If you don't uh, if you have a Bible, turn there with me. If you don't have one, uh, we'd be honored to give you one. I was thrilled to hand one out after our gathering last week. Somebody said, I've got a Bible, but I don't really understand as well. And the text needs to be a little bit bigger. And boy, have we got one that'll fit, uh, fit the bill. So join with me in hearing God's word. Paul writes, I want you to know that the gospel I preached, that the good news I proclaim is not from something that humans made up. I did not receive it from any human, nor was I taught it. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Knows this, and, and, and this is important. The gospel, the good news, is not the result of Paul's reasoning or his reflection. It's something that has been revealed. It's something that he receives. Great C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, Christianity must be from God. Who else could have thought it up? But this could not be more opposite to how faith is described and how faith is discussed in our day. Think about it. Our world talks about finding faith, doesn't it? Talks about finding God. Even some of our hymns make it about us. You know how it goes. I have decided to follow Jesus. Now, that's a really good thing to do. I encourage it. However, we have to make sure that the emphasis is in the right place. Is the emphasis on I, or is the emphasis on Jesus? We need to make sure we have the right emphasis on the right syllable, as they say, that the emphasis would be on Jesus, not on I. See, we live in a culture where we're told to find our own path, to make our own way, to live our own truth, which puts incredible pressure upon our own reflection and our reasoning. Our culture has been call, called one of expressive individualism. Like the great philosopher Popeye taught, I am what I am. <laughs> but that's not how the gospel works. The gospel is not first and foremost your decision to follow Jesus. The gospel is revealed and then received. It is a God-given gospel. It is not something we've come up with. We couldn't have done so if we tried. The great Frederick Buechner once put it this way. He said, there are two different ways of describing how you come to know something. One way is to say you found it out. The other way is to say that it occurred to you. 
Reason is involved in both. But to say you found something out is different than to say that it occurred to you. Not long ago, my kids were asking me who my best friend was. I had to think about it for a little bit. Who's my best friend? They're back in school, in person, full class, having the time of their lives despite those masks, and they are thrilled to be back with their friends, and they're trying to figure out. It's almost like a jockeying for position. Well, who's your best friend? Well, who's your best friend? No, I said he was my, no, he's my best friend. He's not yours. You know how it goes. Dad, who's your best friend? Well, in one sense, of course, the answer would be Jesus, right? In another sense, it would be, well, mom, right? But the way that I answered their question was an interesting one. I could say that I found something out, or I could say it occurred to me. And when I think about my best friend, well, it occurred to me that my best friend is my friend Cole. Cole's been there with me through thick and thin, through good times and bad. Cole was there with me as a groomsman when I got married. Cole's been with me at my lowest and rejoiced with me in my highest. Cole. Cole's my best friend, I guess. It, it kind of occurred to me. It wasn't something that I found out. It wasn't something that I had to sort of sit down with a pen and paper and reason my way through. Here's the point. Uh, Bigner says, revelation is a means of grace. Revelation from God is a gift. Christianity is not primarily something we've found out or worked out for ourselves. We need not find our own path. We need not make our own way. We need not live our own truth. The message of the gospel could not be more countercultural. The foundation of faith in Jesus could not be more backwards to the world that we live in. This could not sound more wild to our ears that the call of Christ upon our lives is not to find our own path, it's to follow Jesus in his. In our world, uh, we're told that we get to kind of pick and choose, like, like we were standing in Baskin-Robbins with 31 flavors. But the gospel tells us that something's been revealed and that we can receive it. New York Times columnist David Brooks says that this new kind of thinking in our world is kind of like graduation speech theology. I love this. He says... Uh, this sort of graduation speech theology rings in our ears where we're told to follow your passion, to follow, uh, to chart your own course, to march to the beat of your own drummer, to follow your dreams and find yourself. But no, the good news is actually the other way around. The foundation of faith is quite the opposite. Again, Beekner puts it this way. He says, Christ came to us. He healed people. He forgave people their sins. Jesus said to love everybody, including your enemy. This Jesus died in a particularly unpleasant way. And in so doing, he even forgave his executioners. Christianity was born when it occurred to some of the ones who had known him that this kind of life was the only kind of life worth living. And that in some invisible way, Jesus is still around to help us live it. See, the gospel is not something that we reason or need to reflect upon. No, in fact, it's something that's revealed, something that we receive. Nobody figured Christianity out. It happened. That's why we call it a revealed religion. This is important, especially as we engage um, Paul's letter to the Galatians and any of his letters, because it's become very fashionable in our world to refer to Paul as the one who invented or originated Christianity. 
He wrote so many different letters around the world, started so many different churches around the ancient Mediterranean area of, of the world that people have begun to say, well, well, Paul's the one who kind of came up with Christianity, but nothing could be further from the truth. The gospel, the good news, is not a result of his reasoning or reflection, and it's not a result of ours either. It is something revealed that we receive. And when we read these letters, especially one like Galatians, it's kind of like hearing one end of a telephone conversation. Do you remember the last time you did that? And you can hear someone responding, but you can't hear the other person talking. Or, or maybe it's like um, reading someone's email reply when you don't have the original message. Like that person in your office who replies all to every email and adds more people to their response, even though they didn't get the first message. And you're like, why do I need to see this? I don't need to see this. Quit jamming up my inbox. Anybody have a friend like that? So read between the lines a little bit. Because we don't have the Galatians correspondence to Paul. All we have is his response to them. He continues. He says, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. You know how intensely I persecuted the church of God, how I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, that's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? But when God, the God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see who the who were apostles before I was, but I immediately went to Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. You see, Paul tells his story, Paul tells his testimony in a particularly Jewish way. See, Paul did not so much convert to Christianity as he became convinced, as it was revealed, that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. It was a continuation of the story of God, that Jesus is the promised Savior. And so there are these, these hints, these sort of wink-wink, nudge-nudges in these verses where Paul compares himself to Jeremiah, the one who was called by grace. He compares himself to Jacob, who was set apart by birth. And then he compares himself to none other than Elijah. That same Elijah who had that showdown on Mount Carmel. That same Elijah who was on the run for 40 days and 40 nights. That same Elijah who hid out in the cave. When there's the great and powerful wind and the earthquake and the fire and then the gentle whisper. It's fascinating to me that Paul would be so bold as to compare himself to someone like Jacob. A patriarch of the Jewish faith. He would be so bold to compare himself to Jeremiah, the prophet. I, I can't believe that Paul would be so bold to compare himself to these great patriarchs of the faith when we consider what followed in his life. When we consider that he took that great faith, that great Jewish background, and he used it to persecute and to kill people who had decided to follow Jesus. It's so bold. But that's why he includes Elijah. That's why he references not only Jacob, not only Jeremiah. That's why he talks about Elijah. You see, Paul was zealous like Elijah, wasn't he? Paul defined himself by what he was against, and he was a murderer like Elijah, trying to stamp out the Jesus movement. But he received a revelation like 
Elijah. When Paul tells us that he immediately went to Arabia, it's a reference to Elijah on Mount Horeb in Mount Sinai, hiding out in a cave, thinking through the revelation that he'd received. That's when Elijah is rethinking. That's when Elijah is repenting. And Paul says, I did the same thing. I'd received this revelation, and now it was time to do some business with God. In the following verses, he describes how he went to Jerusalem three years later. He met with Peter and with James. Fourteen years after that, he returned again with Barnabas and Titus. He wanted to make sure that the message he was preaching was the same message as those who had been with Jesus physically in the flesh. And their message was the same, though their methods were different. Peter and James went to Jews who, who were well-versed in Judaism, and Jesus sent Paul to those who were Gentiles, who had no knowledge of life in the Jewish faith. But notice how Paul defines himself. Notice how he differentiates himself. It's almost like that expressive individualism, where we find our own path, where we make our own way, where we live our own truth. Years ago, when the Me Too movement swept through Hollywood, a convicted rapist named Harvey Weinstein emailed his friend looking for grace. Now, I trust we're all well aware of Harvey Weinstein, what he has been accused of and, and now convicted of, and, and yet at this time he was convinced that he could make a comeback if he could only remove himself from the spotlight for a little while. And, and hear the words that he writes to a friend of his in an email we can now see. He said, my board is thinking of firing me. All I'm asking for is this. Let me take a leave of absence. Let me get into heavy therapy and counseling, whether it be in a facility or somewhere else. And, and here's the important part. He says, allow me to resurrect myself with a second chance. Did you notice that? Resurrect myself. A resurrection that he's in control of. A resurrection, a new life, a new birth, a starting over that he can define for himself. How bold is that? But remember, remember, it's revelation that causes our repentance it's revelation that causes us to rethink, to repent, to change our mind. How often, though we are not Harvey Weinstein, how often can we fall into that thinking that if it's up to be, it's up to me. I can resurrect myself. I can start over. I can make a new life. No, it's the other way around. Revelation causes our repentance Remember the most likely to succeed in the back of your yearbooks? Paul was the least likely to become a missionary for Jesus, and yet it happened, not because of anything he did, but because of who God is. That's the gospel in a nutshell, but when God. The God who set apart someone like Paul from birth, but when God chose him to preach the good news to the Gentiles. Reminds me of when theologian Karl Barth was once asked what he would say to Adolf Hitler. He replied simply, what I would say to Adolf Hitler is, Jesus Christ died for your sins. The gospel, in a nutshell, the foundation of faith, 
that is revealed. It's not something where we resurrect ourselves, but it's revealed and it's received. These are dramatic examples, Harvey Weinstein, Adolf Hitler, and yet I mention them because I wonder if, as we read the New Testament, we have heard this story so many times before that it's not quite as jarring. That we think of the Apostle Paul and all of the wonderful things that he said, all of the incredible things that he did, all the people that he led to faith in Jesus, all the churches he started, and we think about that, but we forget the backstory. We forget how he was first known. It's not quite as jarring anymore. We've forgotten the scandalous story of how church persecutor became church planter. You see, only God can do that. Only the gospel can do that. And history is littered with examples of those like Paul who are indifferent or even opposed to the gospel message, but they ultimately give their lives to it. Sometimes it makes me wonder if if you really don't want to follow Jesus, the best you can do is be apathetic. Don't try to prove Jesus wrong. Don't try to investigate whether it happened or not, because if you do, Jesus will meet you in the midst of all those questions, in the midst of all those doubts. History is littered with examples of people like Paul, because like Elijah, Paul had been zealous for the Lord, but hadn't been with the Lord. And if we want to do great things for God, we have to be with God. Instead of seeing God as God is, Paul saw God as he was. He had projected who he thought God was. And so Paul's zeal was directed to those he was against, rather than that zeal being directed to those that God was for. New Testament professor named Scott McKnight um, has seen the same kind of projection in his classes. Um, As students arrive for the very first day of lectures, their freshman year at a Christian university, Scott McKnight gives them a questionnaire. He engages their perceptions of a whole host of theological and social issues of our day. A week later, whether the students remember it or not, probably not, there's a lot going on that first week of classes. A week later, he gives the same exact questionnaire, and yet he asks them about Jesus' perception of theological and social issues of our day. And Scott McKnight says that you can take each individual student's perception of Jesus and their thoughts on theological and social issues of the day, and you can hold them up on a piece of paper and they align perfectly. These brand new first-year college students have got it all figured out. (laughs) They understand Jesus perfectly. Wouldn't you know it? um, That's exactly how we can engage a life of faith as well. We, too, can be convinced that we think exactly what Jesus thinks. Oh, how we need to receive God's revelation. Oh, how we need time to rethink and time to repent. I read this week of a a pastor who regularly tells his congregation that, gosh, he feels like he might be wrong on a whole host of theological issues. I mean, it's kind of a scary thing for a pastor to admit. I'm not ready to do so because I'm pretty sure I've got it figured out. But what would it mean for us to have that kind of humility? That we recognize that God's word has been revealed. The written word that we are able to read and reflect upon. That God's word, Jesus, has been revealed, has come to us while we were yet sinners, while we had no idea or understanding 
What would it mean for us to have that kind of humility? As we would say in the sort of Presbyterian tradition that we are reformed and we are always reforming. That God is always seeking to move us along in our journey of faith. May we remember that doing great things for God requires that we spend time with God. See, that's Elijah in 1 Kings 18, isn't it? Trying to do really great things for God, but not spending time with God. And that's why he's so worn out. That's why he needs a nap and a snack and another nap and another snack and to hide out in a cave. And God says, look, here's an earthquake. Not an earthquake. Here's a great wind. I'm not in the great wind. Here's a fire. I'm not in the fire. And as Elijah goes out to the mouth of the cave, there's that gentle whisper, the sound of sheer silence. May our sermons and our Bible studies, may our personal times of engaging the word be not merely informational, but transformational. May we pause long enough to let it speak deep down to our soul. May we be reminded that the sword of the spirit is really like a scalpel. It's doing surgery on us. It's helping clarify that it is the revelation that we are to receive. Perhaps I love the story of Elijah so much because I need that story of Elijah so much. I want the, fall, the fire falling from the sky, right? I want the zeal. I want the passion of 1 Kings 18. But what I need is that gentle whisper, that still small voice, that sound of sheer silence. May our sermons not be the last word, but the first word. May our Bible studies be not the last word, but the first word that allows us to grow deeper not merely informational, but transformational, changed more and more into the image of Jesus. May we continue to receive the revelation from God, the God-given gospel. God, we give you thanks for the promise that you speak and you are still speaking. We give you thanks for your word that is available to us. We give you thanks that we live in a place where we are able to gather together in freedom and to hear these words, whether in person or online. We give you thanks that you continue to speak. May we continue to listen. May we continue to hear. God, how easy it is for us to define ourselves by our own desires. How easy it is that we might define ourselves by what we're against. May we be defined by the gospel of what we're for that we're for this Jesus because this Jesus is for us. He came to be with us, to show us a life that is led by love. Continue to meet us, God, where we are and, and draw us unto you. Draw us out to the mouth of our caves that we might hear the sound of sheer silence, that still small voice, that gentle whisper. Help us be with you that we might be for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.